So again, let yourself be comfortable and at ease. Over the course of this fall, especially over the last couple of months, I've been returning back to some of the most fundamental and uh, central Dharma teachings, or teachings from the Buddhist tradition, um, particularly those that would be helpful in the times of change that we are living through. And in particular now, um, tonight will be the fourth in the and completion in the series of talks on the four divine states, or the four natural uh, states of the heart when we rest in who we really are, when we open our hearts. Um, we worked these past weeks with practices and teachings of loving-kindness, the first of these um, divine inner states. The second was compassion for the sorrows of the world. The third last week was the practice of practices of joy. And this evening is the practice of equanimity, the teachings of equanimity. There are those, says the Buddha, who discover they can leave behind confused reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by the fires of anger or fear, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. And so one of the invitations of spiritual life is to discover the reality of equanimity and balance that is possible in every human heart. Now there are some rather dramatic examples um, from the Buddhist teachings. There was one young monk who had been quite a successful meditator who went to the Buddha and said, I now want to go and missionarize or teach in this foreign land and tell them the great benefits of this kind of meditation practice and way of living that you've offered. And the Buddha said, well, what if you go there and they don't listen to you? He said, then I will be grateful that they are not uh, disparaging me. And he said, well, what if you go there and they disparage and, and uh, um, say bad things about you? He said, then I'll be grateful that they don't completely ignore me. Well, what if you go there and they completely ignore you? He said, then I'll be grateful that they don't beat me. <laughs> well, what if you go there and they do throw things at you and beat you? He said, well, then I'll be grateful that they don't kill me. And the Buddha said, all right, you can go. <laughs> I think you're ready. <laughs> Feels like you have enough equanimity to be able to go into even a difficult situation and remain in your heart at peace. The world around us is in constant change. We know this as a, you know, almost an automatic uh, way of looking at things, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, arise and pass all the time for each of us. And what is possible for you and for every human being when we return to the heart of wisdom that is our true nature, is to rest in an openness or spaciousness or peace 
that is balanced in the midst of all these changes. Now there's a story told that I like to tell when I teach about the perfections of the heart from the Buddha, um, that when this modern era's Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama of India 2,500 years ago, met one of the previous Buddhas, Dipankara Buddha. He took a vow after seeing the um, radiance and peacefulness and compassion uh, of this Dipankara Buddha. He took a vow that I too will do whatever it takes to become just like that man, just like that person. And so he began to practice patience, mindfulness, generosity, compassion, equanimity, truthfulness. And it took him, as the story is told, four immensities and a hundred thousand mahakalpas before he could perfect himself. And the mahakalpa is described as the amount of time it takes a bird with a silk scarf in its beak to wear away a mountain that is seven miles high, seven miles wide and seven miles long, higher than Mount Everest. Every hundred years the bird comes with the silk scarf in its feet and drags it across the peak of the mountain, wearing it away slightly. And when that mountain is worn down, that is one Mahakalpa. Okay? So it's a long period of time, I would say. A hundred thousand Mahakalpas. Of course, when one hears that, think, well, I can't, I can't do that. I mean, I have trouble sitting 40 minutes, you know, <laughs> Mahakalpas. But what's lovely about these images and stories is that it begins to speak of something that's outside of immediate time, that is timeless and ever-present and eternal. Because if we think, I've got to be patient for 100,000 Mahakalpas and you see the bird wearing the mountain away, it becomes very difficult, trying, if you will. But the teachings of equanimity or balance of the heart really speak to our resting in a place that is outside of time. Because time comes from our thought. We create time with our minds, actually. Where's the past? Anybody show me. How about the future? Doesn't exist except as a thought, does it? All there is is the reality of the present. And then we have these thoughts about what happened or what will happen. But the experience is just now. And if we can discover the trust, the capacity to rest now where we are, then equanimity and the blessings of timelessness or the eternal, as it's spoken of, um, arise for us. Now, equanimity is also taught as a balance for compassion. Because when we look at the great suffering that exists in this world, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago the unending human history of warfare, of racism, of injustice, uh, and so forth. Um, It's pretty sad. And it's not all there is, there's incredible beauty. But human beings have made a lot of the suffering that we humans experience, and we continue to do so to this day. Grain elevators full of food in certain countries, and children starving in another. What kind of societies have we made? Equanimity is taught because if one 
rests only on the wing of compassion as a bird. You can't really fly freely. You can get swamped or overwhelmed by becoming personally invested in your changing the world. And it's not that we shouldn't do our part to make the world a better place. We need to do that. But if you have the idea that you're going to fix it, good luck. It doesn't mean that you can't contribute and help. But if you think you know how the world should be, as opposed to how it is, then you will suffer. It's called divine equanimity. It's a grace that rests where we are, that breathes, that honors a place of peace in the midst of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Because this is what's woven into our experience in life. A trust in the seasons, in the turning of the earth. You know, if we look, people, animals, the stock market, buildings, nations, civilizations, all are turning, all are moving. Everything has its cycle and everything has its season. And um, and I like the uh, practice, mostly on a warm night, of lying out on the grass and looking at the stars when the night is really clear and then imagining this tiny little turn that instead of being on top of the earth, that you're lying there on the bottom of the earth, being held stuck by gravity like a magnet, and you're looking down into the sea of stars. Because you are, I mean, up and down is also just arbitrary, really. And then you look down and, and there's these, the, the, gal- the Milky Way galaxy that turns every hundred million years. And then you think about your problems, right? Put it in the little little bit of a perspective, all of these things. I mean, I also like um, Calvin and Hobbes' little comment, I think it was Calvin who was saying that the um, surest sign of intelligent life in the rest of the universe is the fact that it hasn't tried to contact us. to look at the world with the eyes of wisdom. So this is a passage where the Buddha says, I consider the positions of kings and rulers as that of dust motes in the sunbeam. I see the treasures of gold and gems as broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds in the great Indian Ocean as drops of oil at my feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as the traces left by the four seasons. To see with the eyes of wisdom that we are in this great eternal dance of birth and death and praise and blame and joy and sorrow, and gain and loss. And this is how it works. We breathe in and breathe out, and the cycles change. And if we look upon the world with the soft eyes of love and wisdom, it doesn't mean that we don't care about the earth, 
and those around us. They are very precious. But like a parent with a child, we realize that we can love enormously and tend and weep for, and yet we cannot possess. You can't possess your children. If you try to, it's really bad for them and really bad for you. You can love them and nourish them and honor them, but they have to be free to fulfill their own nature. And as your child goes out the door, mostly what you can do, especially I have a teenage daughter who's driving now, you pray. I mean, that's all. What can you do? Okay. Because there is such... The world is not ours to possess. There is so much bigger a plan than we know in our own small perspective. And there aren't any rules about how it's going to unfold. Somerset Mom said, there are three rules for writing the great novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Tulku Tundup. If you lose your own peaceful center and are overwhelmed by the force of others and external circumstances, then your own mind will have no independence, no freedom, no grace, and you will be functioning in terms of a slave. You will be reactive to everything. The truth of equanimity invites us to live in a different way. So there's this beautiful description that Thomas Merton gives of going to visit the statues of the Buddha in Polonarua in Sri Lanka. These huge marble uh, images of Buddha. There's a big, wonderful grassy lawn with great trees at the beginning of it, and you walk barefoot like a temple. And there are these hundred-foot-high statues, which he called the most uh, amazing work of art that he'd seen in all his world travels. He said that they were more alive than some people that he knew in some way. And he spoke of the great smiles, the extraordinary faces, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. A peace not of emotional resignation, but of openness that is seen through every question without refutation, without establishing some other argument the peace of being with this world as it is, the heart at peace. To discover equanimity requires a profound or radical acceptance of the heart, of the way things are. And I don't mean that we shouldn't work to feed the hungry and care for the, those who are sick, but there's a bigger picture of the way things are that it's not given to us to change in some, in our, from our small sense of self. You know what I'm talking about. To find this radical acceptance, well, there's a beautiful calligraphy Yvonne Rand has from her Zen master Suzuki Roshi over her altar, her Zen center, which says on it, it takes as long as it takes. That's a teaching of equanimity. Remember all those moments in your life when you wanted it to take some other amount of time? It takes as long as it takes. A radical acceptance. 
there's this wonderful story of the psychiatrist and hypnotherapist Milton Erickson who went into a psychiatric hospital back in when he was beginning to train people in the 1950s at some point and was introduced to a, a man who believed that he was Jesus and was walking around giving teachings and so forth. And they had tried all different strategies to try to help this man with his delusion, um, none of which were particularly successful. You know, when somebody has a very strong religious belief, as you know, it can it it, it kind of washes over everything else. Milton Erickson's strategy, when he went up, instead of trying to talk him out of it or, you know, whatever other things they tried in the hospital, he just went up and he said, oh, I hear you're a carpenter. And the man said, yes. He said, well, we have some work that we need done here by a carpenter. <laughs> and he took him on his own terms and then began to work with him to engage again in the world as it was. Radical acceptance also means a kind of not knowing. And that's certainly true at this time in the world. You know, I feel that war is an outmoded and um, crude and horrible way for human beings to solve our dilemmas. Um, And I would much rather see some kind of international police action and ways of, you know, dealing with the conflicts of the world and and, uh, more compassionately. And yet, you know, is this war all bad? Is there something good about it? Um, And it's confusing, actually, isn't it? Um, We have stories about how things should be with our children, our families, our employers, our employees, our work, our community, who's supposed to do what. And in a certain way, and they need to be respected, But in another, they're just stories. They're just arbitrary. Ed had a gift for optimism. A gift for optimism. He believed what he wanted to. Of course, that's not different than anyone else in this room. Ruth said that if Ed tossed a ball in the air three times and tried to hit it three times with a bat and three times missed, he would, quite undisturbed, conclude, wow, what a pitcher. (laughs) we can see things in so many different ways what equanimity does is it rests not in our views of things but in the loving heart we trust from equanimity that great movement of the heart that's openness, that sees things rise and fall, gain and loss, praise and blame. Anybody not have praise and blame? Raise your hand. That we see the changing of seasons. So it says in the Tao, the master sees things as they are without trying to control them. She lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle at peace. There's a kind of beauty to the mind and heart that's at peace. And when things are chaotic and you meet somebody who's calm and at peace, no matter how difficult things are, if there's somebody that you encounter in that state, isn't it a blessing? Isn't it a wonderful thing? 
And guess who that person could be? <laughs> Moi, as Miss Piggy says. Or in your case, you, yes. You could be that one. And in fact, that's what the world asks of us in a certain way. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. He said, in the small refugee boats that were cast out on the ocean, when the big storms came, or the pirates came, if everybody panicked, then all was lost. But if one person on the boat could remain calm and centered, they showed the way for everyone else to survive. And so this is the blessing of a peaceful heart, to find that in ourselves. We tend to live by other values. How much did you get done? You know, how much have you completed of your list of things that, you know, you're supposed to be, how much in this and that. And in the end, I mean, what matters in the end? What's the hurry? Thank you for calling the motivation hotline, says. Press one for modest encouragement. (laughs) Press two for a serious talking to. Press three for a good swift kick in the pants, right? All these ideas of how we're supposed to do things and we need to do more and we need to do them faster and we need to accomplish and then we'll be a good person. This is a confusion of our purpose on the earth. It's a confusion where we take the small sense of self, the body of fear that's always struggling and trying to make and feels somehow incomplete, where we take that to be who we really are. And yet, in a moment, in any moment, we can let go of all those kind of plans. It doesn't mean that you don't plan or don't think or don't respond, but we can let go of the grasping of all of that and just come back and be where we are, which is actually where we are all the time anyway, isn't it? About this mind, says my teacher Ajahn Chah, in truth, it really isn't anything. It's just a natural phenomena that within its own nature is already peaceful. That our mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows its stories and its moods. The real mind is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because the stories and moods deceive it. The untrained mind is tricked into believing happiness, suffering, reacting with sorrow or gladness. But the heart's true nature is none of these things. We get lost in them and forget who we really are, but really our nature is unmoving, timeless, and peaceful. When the wind comes, a leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering of the mind is due to all the sense impressions and the stories we tell. When we learn to rest where we are and not follow them, we don't flutter in this way. Our practice is simply to remember this original mind, to trust it, to rest in it. So that's kind of the old style teachings about it. Here's a more modern version. An older couple went to visit friends in another part of the country and were taken to a race course. They'd never been there. Fascinated by the horses, they 
began to bet all evening till they had no more than two dollars left. The following day, the husband prevailed on his wife to let him take the two dollars that were left and go back to the race course. He had such a good time. There was a horse with 50 to 1 odds in the first race. He bet on it and put one and put all the money on another long shot and he kept winning. He did this all evening and he came out with $57,000. On the way back home, he passed a casino and some inner voice that was guiding him, the horses seemed to say, stop in here. So he went in and stood in front of a roulette wheel and a voice in him said, number 12, and he put the $57,000 on number 12, the wheel spun, number came up was 14. So the man walked back home with nothing in his pocket. His wife said from the porch, how was your day, dear? How did it go? And the husband shrugged his shoulders and he said, I lost the two dollars. <laughs> it really is like that, you know. We have stuff for a while and then we don't have it. You don't, you know, remember that story somebody asked about this very, very rich man who died. They said, well, well, how much did he leave, you know, thinking about the will? And the other person said, why, everything, of course. How much do you think he would leave? <laughs> and if you look back after a while at all the things that upset you with your lover, or your child, or parent, or, or in your life, at, at the things that upset you, not much of it really matters after a year, or two, or three, or ten, really doesn't. When you look back, there aren't many things of that that are important. What matters is were we present for our life? Did we love well? Now, equanimity should not be confused with its near enemy, which is indifference. Indifference is a removal from life. I don't care about it. Indifference is really based on a fear, a withdrawal. Equanimity is not a withdrawal of life, but a willingness to be present for life with our eyes open and our heart open in the midst of it all. It is to rest in what T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. We sit, and even in, you know, 40 minutes of sitting, there's a kind of cellular coming back to the center. And when you get up from sitting, even if you just sat and, you know, did your laundry list and planned and remembered and all those things that the mind does, because minds do that, but you are still enough to, even for a few moments, know that, then you get up and somehow you are more present for yourself, for one another, and it makes, makes a kind of amazing difference. William Butler Yeats. We can make our minds so still, so like still water, that beings gather around us that they may see their own images, and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. We give such a gift to the world on which we live when we make ourselves peaceful. Because if we want the world to be peaceful, there's only one place it can start, and that's with human beings who are making the trouble. And the only place that we can start, really, is with this one heart. And then that touches others.
to have the quality of equanimity, and it's one thing to say it, you know, to have it when there's suffering, when we love someone or care for a circumstance, is perhaps the most difficult. Sometimes our heart is breaking, you know, our children are in a drug treatment program and we don't know how it's going to come out. Or our lover or our dearest friend has just finished chemotherapy and now they're clear for the first week or month or whatever and then there's nothing you can do except wait and see what will happen, how long they will have or if the cancer will come back. We could worry the whole time, what will happen to my children, to my friend, to my own body? Because we do love so deeply. Or we can find a way to bow to what's true, to offer our prayers, to care, and then to return to a place of peace, which helps us and them and everyone we love. Because actually the fear that's there in the other of holding on doesn't help that child or that lover, or that person who's been sick. They don't need your fear, you understand? What really helps is a peaceful heart. The old grandfather, who had never been in an airplane. So, you know, the grandchildren said, okay, Grandpa, for your you know 80th, 85th birthday, we want you to have the experience of flying. He was really nervous about it, and they got a little plane and took him up for a ride over the valley, the farm where he lived, all this. He did it and came back down and they said, how was it, Grandpa? Did you like it? He said, it was amazing. I could see the farms around, all of this stuff. He said, were you, were you afraid? He said, well, I was afraid when I started, you know, but I got, a, I, I got a little bit used to it. But tell the truth, I never really fully let my weight down. Right? <laughs> we are just like that, actually. We don't trust. We don't trust. And yet, we are carried by something so much bigger than what we know, which is the stream of life. You're not so much in charge of it. You get a little bit that you can do. But the big things, we're really not so much in charge of. And when we don't realize this, we're caught in the body of fear, the small sense of self. When we remember who we really are, there's a graciousness, an ease, a a peace that comes. A love, not that tries to control, but that loves no matter what happens. There comes a kind of fearlessness in the heart to live the life that we are given each day, no matter what. So, my friends, writes the poet Wendell Berry, Every day do something that won't compute. Love the person that you find most difficult. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take what you have and give to the poor. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Ask questions with no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main activity is planting sequoias in the forest that you will not live to harvest. Put your faith in the two inches of soil that will build under the redwood trees every thousand years. Every day do something that you do for your soul's sake because of who you really are. 
This is the kind of fearlessness of the heart that doesn't deny change and doesn't deny birth and death and joy and sorrow and praise and blame, but brings our heart to each moment as fully as we can and then when it's done, allows it to pass. Because what else is there? One moment after another. (coughs) Recently, writes Bertolt Brecht, my fingers have developed a prejudice against comparatives. They follow this pattern. A squirrel is smaller than a tree. A bird is more musical than a tree. The moon is cooler than the snow. Each of us is the strongest one in their own skin. The characteristics of life should take off their hats to one another instead of judging or spitting in one another's faces. We have so many ideas about how it's supposed to be and how they're supposed to be and how we are supposed to be. Instead, to rest with things as they are, to bow to them, the suffering, the beauty, each moment, and then plant the seeds that matter to us. And when we do this, wherever we are becomes the pure land, the holy ground, the sacred ground. My teacher Ajahn Chah was asked about his own meditation. How how did he prepare his mind? Was he enlightened in some special way? He said, there's nothing special. I just rest where I am. Then they say, well, is this enlightenment? Are you some great enlightened sage? And he asks, do I know? I'm like a tree full of leaves, blossoms, and fruit. Birds come to eat and nest in the tree. Yet the tree does not know itself. It follows its nature. It is as it is. So the practices of equanimity, which we'll do a little bit of in our last 15 or 20 minutes together, begin with a reflection that although we can cultivate boundless compassion and loving kindness, and strive to serve beings and alleviate the sufferings of the world. Still, there are so many things that we cannot affect and cannot change. Then we begin to reflect on the benefits of a peaceful heart, to see the world with the eyes of a Buddha, that sees from a hundred thousand mahakalpas the joys and sorrows, the successes and failures, to see it all. And then there can be a kind of inner reflection if we begin with ourself. May I be at peace, just the heart's intention. May I be undisturbed at the passing events of the world. All things arise and pass. Humans, animals, events, nations, civilizations. May I learn to rest in stillness in the midst of them all. Along with this practice, 
we'll do a version of it in a moment, is one other reflection that goes like this. Begin to reflect, though I can help, I cannot love for another, I cannot let go for another, I cannot be free for another. All beings receive their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. This is a very intense reflection, isn't it? All beings receive their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. It's ancient reflection. And when you get entangled in a way that you can feel is based on fear, on the small sense of self. All beings are subject to their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. May I remain balanced. May I be at peace. May I be undisturbed at the arising and passing of all things. Then you can begin to visualize one after another, other beings you love or care for, friends or neutral people or others. May you be at peace. May you be undisturbed. May your heart be still and continue that. So this is the initial instructions for equanimity meditation. But I want to do it in a different form that some of you know from retreat practice, which is the form that works with the mind as space or sky. In one text where the Buddha is speaking to Rahula, he says to Rahula, May develop a mind that is like space or like water or like earth. He goes through these images. For in the earth, the earth receives both what is clean and unclean without complaint. It digests it, it takes them all in. The water you can place in what is colored and clear, what is clean and unclean, and the great oceans will wash them away. Develop a mind that is like space where what is agreeable and disagreeable arises and passes, leaving no trace. Just as space is not limited or not destroyed by anything whatsoever, develop a mind and heart that is free and open like space. So let's do a little bit of meditation, if you will, using the image of space connecting it with equanimity, the fourth of the practices over these four weeks. Let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable so that your body is somewhat at ease and you don't have to move necessarily for the next little while. And allow your eyes to close gently when you're ready. And first begin simply as you sit here, simply listening, listening to these words and to the sound of the room around the words and to the stillness between the sounds. 
O nobly born, it says in the Buddhist texts, O you who are the sons and daughters of good families, sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember your true nature, who you really are. Let go into it, trust it. If you look directly into your own mind, you will see that it is quite intelligible, although invisible. In its true state, mind is naked, immaculate, transparent, (coughs) timeless, containing all things, yet not limited by them clear and open and free. To know if this is so or not, look within your own mind. And as you listen, let yourself also listen to the sound of these bells. away. As you listen, try to let yourself feel or sense or imagine any way you can that your mind is not limited to the size of your head, that your mind is as big as this whole room and even bigger, vast like open sky, without boundaries, no inside or outside. Let yourself feel and sense how your mind extends open and vast, like the sky without limits. And as you listen to these words, to the sound of the bells, to distant sounds, They are not outside the mind, 
sense and feel the mind vast, containing all things. And the sounds arise and pass like clouds in an empty sky. There is no inside or outside, simply the pure space of awareness. And sounds rise and vanish like clouds. Let yourself also become aware of the thoughts and images that float through this same pure sky of mind. Just as sounds come and go, So too thoughts, words, and pictures, images will arise and move through the space of awareness and disappear, leaving no trace. Look directly at the mind itself and see if this is so. Let yourself rest in the space of awareness before and after thoughts, like the sky still and open, sounds come and go, Thoughts appear and disappear. Trust in this openness. Let go into it.
rest in it. It is your true home. the sky of mind. Let yourself notice as well the body. If you feel carefully in this open space of awareness, there is no solid body, no inside or outside. There are just areas of pressure and temperature, warm and cool, areas of sensation that float in the space of awareness. If you feel carefully, you'll notice that there's space in and around the sensations, nothing solid. They move and float and change. And even the breath moves like a breeze, no inside or outside just the sensations of breathing floating in the same space of mind. nobly born, let go and trust this timeless presence. Remember that from this place all things arise and pass and your heart can be at peace. Let yourself rest undisturbed at the changing of the seasons. Let your heart remain still and open, tender with all things, 
and yet at peace. All beings are subject to their own karma. They receive their karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. May they be well. May they be held in compassion. And may I remain at peace. May all beings find peace. When you hear the bell next, let your eyes open. And even with the sights that come, rest in this simple and pure knowing within which the experiences of the moment rise and pass. Let yourself rest in the heart of peace. These are two practices to work with equanimity or peace. The intention that's recited, may I be at peace, may I be balanced and undisturbed at the changing events of the world. May I rest in stillness in the midst of all that rises and passes. Those kind of intentions. And then seeing others, may you be at peace. May you find stillness. May you rest undisturbed at the changes of this earth, one at a time and then many. Or resting with the mind like space or sky as we've just done, discovering in yourself this true capacity to contain all things, the joys and sorrows, let them arise and pass and be still still in the center. Did that work for you, listening to sounds beyond the size of your head? For some of you, it looks like it did. If it does, it's a wonderful meditation to use in the chaos of the busy times of your life, or holiday seasons, or times when things are noisy and you think, I can't meditate. You say, oh, let me just sit and let the sounds play as they will, whatever they are and be like space that lets them come and go. So this is the completion of the fourth of these natural states of heart, of love or loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, and of our innate peace and capacity for stillness. It's a treasure and it is yours. No one can give it to you. 
and no one can take it from you. It is always there to be found. Again, I thank you for coming, for your kind attention. And I hope that these practices, the loving-kindness, the compassion, the equanimity practice, and so forth, are ones that you can experiment and explore and work with. You don't just do them once. It's like practicing piano. You kind of have a little lesson, and then you go back and you practice them. And you do them, you know, over some months, a number of times, 50 times you try it or something, and you learn something, and it changes the way that we live. It reminds us of how we can be. So then the chant tonight is a very simple one. Um, It's simply the seed syllable from Sanskrit, ah, which means to open space, let go. It's considered the first and last sound, and it's the summary of all the texts of perfect wisdom in one syllable. Ah, because it means just let go and be here, open, compassionate, and free. So we'll chant ah for a bit and then go out into the winter evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.